Hi, welcome to the Tax Chick Podcast. I am your host, Amanda Doucette, a self-proclaimed foodie, spin class, and Pilates enthusiast, and a tax lawyer. I fell into the practice of tax law despite having a lifelong hatred of spreadsheets, math, and numbers in general. Tax is complex, but it does not always have to be so complicated and shrouded in mystery. Join me and my guests as we unpack some serious tax topics and attempt to demystify the world of tax. Welcome everyone. Today, my guest is one of my law partners, Kim Bisram. I'm so excited to have Kim here today with me on the podcast. A little bit about Kim. So she practices primarily in the area of family law. Her practice is very client focused with a goal to find a practical and long-term resolution to family law needs. Kim works with clients at all stages, including preparation of prenuptial or cohabitation agreements, and also dealing with issues arising from separation, including custody and parenting matters, child and spousal support, property division, and divorce. Kim's goal is to work with clients to find efficient and economical solutions. Kim has training in mediation processes and can offer clients various options to determine a process that is best suited to their needs. Her goal is not to find quick band-aid solutions, but to work with families as they transition in their relationship to meet their long-term needs. While Kim's practice is focused on family law, she is a partner in a full-service law firm that has a strong focus on tax and corporate planning. Of course, this is my firm too, and we always work together, Kim and I, collaboratively to ensure that the client's needs are covered. I will provide some further details on how to connect with Kim in the show notes. So welcome, Kim. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. I know you and I have been talking about this podcast for quite some time. And because we tend to work together a lot with clients, I thought it would be really fabulous to have you on here because there is such an intersection between the work that you're doing and the work that I'm doing. There really is. And I think a lot of times people may not uh, understand how interconnected the different disciplines are that especially when we look at something like family law and tax, they seem so very different. But, you know, I find in my practice that more often than not, tax issues creep in. So there's definitely a a need to have that collaborative approach. Well, I think it it might be kind of fun for people to hear a little bit about you other than than just what you do for work. So, I mean, we've we've sort of indicated a little bit about your amazing skill set as a lawyer. But did you want to tell us a little bit about yourself outside of being a lawyer? Sure. So I had, you know, was thinking whenever somebody asks me about what I do, you know, your immediate thing is to go to what you do professionally. And you've provided me with a a very generous introduction already in that regard. So outside of the practice of law, um, unfortunately, I don't have uh, much by way of hobbies anymore because I am a mother to two small toddlers. So they take up a lot of my time. But uh, you know, generally focusing on, on them outside of the office is, is where you'll find me at this time. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that you took some time out this morning to come with me. And, and we're back at the Saskatoon Club again. I, I feel like I'm just, I'm always camped out in this boardroom, but it's been such a great place to, to record our podcast. I've been asking all of my guests um, the same two questions because I thought it might be kind of fun to see people's, people's answers. And so the, the first question is, I'm curious to hear what the last podcast was that you listened to. Oh, the last podcast. So uh, 
prior to COVID, you know, my one of my Saturday morning traditions was that would be the time when I would go out and get groceries. And, you know, even if my list was five items long, it would always seem to take an hour because that was my time to slowly walk around the grocery store with my headphones in, often listening to a podcast. But again, thanks to COVID, that's not really socially acceptable anymore. So I haven't been listening to as much, but um, one podcast I stumbled across about a month ago is called uh, Negotiate Your Best Life. And it's a, a divorce lawyer from California by the name of Rebecca Zung. And she does a lot of uh, interviews with various people, you know, about negotiation and, and divorce and family law matters. Um, and she often has on as a guest uh, a psychologist out of the United States that specializes in working with people um, with you know, personality disorders um, or generally, you know, narcissistic tendencies. And, you know, it's really interesting to kind of hear the dynamic from the legal and also the psychological um, viewpoints as to how do you negotiate with those people and how do you manage them, especially when um, you're dealing with someone in a family law matter that has those tendencies. So they have a, a series on her podcast that you know I've been listening to and kind of trying to pick up some some tips as to you know what is kind of a good strategy when you're dealing with somebody who may be exceptionally difficult on the other side because either they have a personality disorder or they have um, narcissism or something of that sort. Oh, that's really interesting. I've I've really been hearing about some cool podcasts by asking this question. So what I might do is get the info from you and we can pop it in the show sure. notes. I think that would be useful for not just practicing as a lawyer, but just in life sometimes to get that, that sort of insight into people's personalities, I think is quite interesting. It really is because, you know, I, I think the big takeaway often is that you're never going to change them. So, you know, having tools in your toolbox as to how you can respond to those types of behaviors or those types of persons um, can really help you in managing the conflict from your own end opposed to trying to change the other person because that's just not going to happen. Absolutely. Okay, that's great. And then the other question is, what is the emoji you use most often when texting? This is a good question for an audio uh, recording because I would say likely it's going to either be the eye roll emoji or the face palm. So I use the face palm a lot as well. <laughs> yeah, I find that often, you know, I was going to say often when I'm talking to my husband, I use the face palm, but it's, it's not so much directed at him. It's probably more so about the kids and the things that they're doing and they're saying. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. Well, I think that um, we can maybe move on to some of our topics because we've got some great topics to discuss today. And, and you and I were kind of trying to narrow this down a little bit because it feels like it feels like the, the longer I've known you and, and we've practiced together now for, well, at least a decade we've been working together. So, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but I feel like as we've progressed in our practices, we've started to work together more and more and more. And um, I've really enjoyed that. And I think that it's been great to have someone with, um, with your expertise available to me because I've certainly learned a lot so that I can at least issue identify for my clients. Um, we thought we would try to talk about three things today um, because there's so many things we could talk about, but we've narrowed it to three. So our first topic is going to be five key tax issues that arise in most separations and divorces. 
Our second topic will be how to minimize financial implications upon separation and divorce by doing some more effective planning, utilizing cohab agreements, prenup agreements. And then our last topic will be um, how to utilize alternative dispute resolution measures, so in particular mediation, to find more creative solutions and to minimize tax implications that might arise from separation and divorce. I'm really excited. These are good topics. All right. (laughs) Well, let's move right into topic number one. So five key tax issues that arise in most separations and divorces. And I think a lot of people, when they're in that scenario, they're not even thinking about tax, right? I think sometimes you're having to draw it to their attention when you're, when you're trying to work with them. Yeah. As I had mentioned before, I think a lot of times people don't necessarily go directly to tax implications when they're thinking about things like parenting or support or division of property. Um, but the tax consequences of what people elect to do upon separation can make a big difference in what the actual execution of a separation agreement or a court order might look like. Um, so while you know it's not at necessarily at people's forefront in their mind, it is very important to keep those tax consequences and implications um, on the table because otherwise you might end up with a deal that you didn't bargain for. So I, I thought you know I would pull together a couple topics that often come up in files and these aren't in any particular order but the first first thought uh, item I thought we would talk about is support payments. So generally when we talk about support there's kind of two main types you know people think about child support and they think about spousal support and for the most part um, child support is not taxable income. So if mom is receiving child support from dad, mom does not have to pay tax on that money and dad doesn't get any sort of tax deduction. So in Canada, we have federal child support guidelines that set out the appropriate amount of child support based on income. And when the government came up with those tables, they would factor in um, applicable tax rates to take into account that, okay, if dad makes $100,000 a year and he has two children and he lives in Saskatchewan, you know, we understand what his gross and net income will be. Um, We know roughly what the standard, you know, living in Saskatchewan is, what the housing costs, that kind of thing. And they came up with these tables. So they've already kind of taken the tax component into account when they come up with the spousal or the child support amounts. The one thing that does come up though, um, tax-wise with child support, is when we're looking at those additional Section 7 expenses. So we call them Section 7 expenses simply because it refers to Section 7 of of the federal child support guidelines. You might also hear them called special expenses or extraordinary expenses. They're those above and beyond expenses. So one that comes up often that has tax treatment is childcare. So when somebody has a childcare expense, um, they can submit their receipts, provided it's from like a licensed provider, with their income tax returns, and they can get a refund from the government at the end of the year based on their income, how much they've paid for childcare. And so when we're looking at what contributions separated spouses should make to, to childcare, we have to keep in mind that there's gonna be that taxable benefit um, or deduction when they file the income tax. Well, and I know one of the issues that I've seen pop up um, with some of my clients is is who's claiming what 
and who has the documentation to do the claim. So do you find that sometimes a bit of an issue? You know, which spouse has actually cut the check to pay for the childcare? Who has the receipt? And then will they give the receipt to the other, you know, the other parent to make sure they can get their claim for whatever they're entitled to? Yeah, you're jumping into my next topic. So we oh, can, I'm sorry. That's okay. We can jump there and then <laughs> I'll jump back. Look at me back. trying to run this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd think it was your show or something. So, yeah, that comes up a lot, right? Where parents are either in conflict as to who is going to make the claim or they think, hey, this is an opportunity that we can collaborate and try to maximize the ability to get the money from the government. So even though maybe mom is paying for the childcare, dad's going to try to file the receipts with his tax return because he'll get a bigger refund in doing so. And so the, the second issue I was going to talk about today is that the application of the income tax rules as set out by CRA cannot be modified by the parties. So there's some pretty strict parameters as to who CRA says can file those sorts of documents. So for example, if the children are living primarily with mom, and mom is the one who you know, is taking them to daycare for the sake of her employment or her education, even if mom agrees, dad is not going to be able to file the childcare receipts um, because the children aren't in dad's primary care. Mm. And I think that's the sort of issue that sometimes pops up. People, people are not aware of how inflexible that the tax rules are in certain areas, and this is definitely one of them. Yeah, we see it a lot with the child tax benefit um, because especially if people are moving into a shared parenting arrangement. So not, not to pick on moms as the lower income earners, but just for consistency. You know, if kids are living primarily with mom and mom is receiving $1,000 a month in childcare benefits, um, and then mom and dad decide that we're gonna move to a shared parenting arrangement. So now kids are also living roughly equally with dad. What CRA says then is that, okay, it doesn't matter if dad doesn't even qualify for child tax benefit. Mom, now because you're in a shared parenting arrangement, we're cutting your benefit in half. Mm -hmm. So sometimes parents say, well, we're gonna move to a shared parenting arrangement and we recognize that that's gonna impact mom's child tax benefits. So let's just you know, not tell CRA that the kids aren't actually living with mom full-time or primarily so mom can keep claiming and CRA says uh, -uh. Um, you know we can require proof we can require um, your separation agreement we can require a court order they can require you to get proof from you know your children's physician or teachers to prove actually where these kids are living because if the actual living arrangement does not reflect what you're reporting to CRA for your benefits CRA may just deny you. Well, and just so that I'm sure I'm not the only person that's listening to this right now that needs this clarification, I always get a bit confused between the issue of custody and then parenting arrangements. So can someone have joint custody but then have a be a primary parent? Can you explain that for me? Yeah, you'll be pleased to know that all of those terms are going to be tossed out the window next year when the revisions to the Divorce Act and also our Saskatchewan Children's Law Act come into effect. So oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, the term, the term custody in itself is really confusing because it can refer to you know, legal custody in the sense of decision making. 
So, you know, if the child needs to have a medical surgery or what school are they going to go to or is the child going to be raised in a certain religion, those are kind of key fundamental decisions over the child that joint legal custodians make together. So a parent or two parents can have legal joint custody and that has nothing to do with where the kids live. It's all about decision making. So we'll see that reflected in the new legislation that's coming out. Um, It was supposed to be released this year, but again, thanks to COVID, that's another thing that's been pushed back. So we'll see that change reflected in that the new terminology is going to be about decision making. So then how does the the interaction then go in terms of claiming things from CRA's perspective? Is it sort of mattering not so much who's making the decisions, but it's mattering where the children are living at a particular time? That's correct, because for the most part, the for example, again, the child tax benefit or there is an ability to potentially claim you know, equivalent to spouse, um, those credits are really meant for your day-to-day expenses. So uh, CRA doesn't care as much about the legal decision-making power. They care about the physical custody, who actually has the daily care and control and responsibility to put a roof over these kids' heads to make sure there's food in their tummy, clothes on their back kind of thing. So when we talk about physical custody, that's getting more into the parenting plan or the schedule. And so we're going to see, again, a shift away from terms like custody and access um, to parenting time. So, okay. Yeah, so it's nice and it's a little bit softer too, right? Than using terms like, well, you are the custodial parent and you are the access parent, right? (laughs) It's it's pretty like you sit over there in the corner until you're called in to do your parenting job. So we're gonna, you know, see a more positive shift to decision making and parenting time. So then if we're if we're kind of thinking about this, one of the things I've seen has popped up is that when you have inconsistencies between what the parents are actually reporting is there anything that can be done on the front end that kind of lays out okay you're going to report this I'm going to report this because this is what CRA kind of requires us to do is there anything that can be done on the front end to clean that up between parents or yeah like for for certain claims um, like again the child tax CRA has pretty clear parameters that They just, you know, if it's a a shared parenting arrangement, and so shared parenting is where the children spend more than 40% of the time with each parent. It doesn't have to be 50-50, but it's, they spend between 40 and 60% of their time with each parent. So that's considered shared. And when it's shared, CRA basically, they assess each parent individually. So, you know, mom, based on her income, is entitled to X dollars for child tax. She gets 50% of that. Dad, based on his income, is entitled to X dollars in child tax, he gets 50%. So there's no kind of integration between mom's income and dad's income or anything like that. They can each just individually file. Um, Where it can get more complicated is if the, the spouses want to claim the children as equivalent to spouse. So when you're separated, if you don't have a new partner, like a new spouse, there is ability to claim a dependent child as equivalent to spouse. And what that permits you to do is um, it increases like that basic exemption that everybody gets on their personal income tax. 
So it can be a huge benefit because uh, you, you might know what that number is. I think it's roughly 13000 or so yes. um, that you don't pay any tax on. I see. So if you can then claim one of your children, now you're up to 26000 of income right. that you don't report any tax on. So it can be a huge saving. The problem with that one is that if mom and dad don't agree who is going to claim and they both file a claim, CRA doesn't give them like an option to try to remedy it. They just deny both. So that's one where it's really important for the parents to work something out in advance. Um, because if they both just forge ahead and they both just file, CRA just says, we're not playing this game. You're both denied. So what people will often do is they'll specify in their separation agreement or even in their court order that you know it works out nice if they have more than one child <laughs> then they just fight over who's the youngest because then they'll get to claim them the longest okay um but you know if they've got two kids well mom claims one and dad claims the other if there's only one child often what we do is we alternate so mom gets to claim in even years and dad gets to claim in odd years oh so you can do that that's quite you interesting can. yeah and again as long as you know, there's a plan or a schedule in place as to who is going to claim, and they both don't try to claim in the same year, it seems to work out fine. And then I think the, the other piece is to make sure that people have their documentation in place, because, you know, if, if you've entered into one of these agreements and, you know, five, six years go by, and then you get audited, the time has passed, and if things are going good, you're probably not dusting any of that stuff off. You just know this is the way that things are going. So in terms of suggestions for... For sort of clients, I'm, I'm assuming it's the same as we would do with a business owner or anybody else. Keep your file folder or your electronic file of exactly what the key documents are. So if you do get the call from CRA, you have your proof, you have your evidence ready to go. Yeah, and, and again, normally that could be done by things like, well, the teachers might know who, you know, who is bringing the kid to school. Um, or the doctor knows, well, who's bringing the kid in for their annual appointment, right? To kind of establish who's the primary parent. That's been really difficult this year as well. I've had a few clients who have received um, letters from CRA and they're requiring proof to show that their children have been in their primary care over the last four or five months. Well, their kids haven't been going to school. Their kids haven't been going right. to the doctor. They haven't left the house. So what type of evidence or proof might you have to confirm that the kids are living with you? Uh, you know, you could look to a neighbor you know, oh, that's CRA, a good idea. CRA does seem to be pretty flexible as to, you know, what kind of proof you can submit. Um, but again, if you're in a situation where you think there may be a dispute over where your kids are residing, keep a calendar, you know, keep a diary, have dates, have times as to when the other parent may be seeing the kids. Uh, if you do have to produce that because it'll be easier to do that as you go than like you said to try to have to go back and backdate it uh, at a later period of time. That's that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it in the context of, of COVID and the fact that you're not doing your normal activities because I think it's hard enough sometimes to get one of these letters for, especially from doctors because they're so busy um, but now if we're really not leaving the house well nobody can even attest to it because nobody's seen the kids. Well I think uh, you know what people don't what people slash CRA might not understand too is that, you know, for example, lawyers or doctors, their knowledge is based on what the client is telling them. You know, I had a client recently who got one of these letters 
Um, so she contacted me and said, well, I need you to write a letter to CRA to tell them that my kids have been with me. And I'm like, well, I don't know that. <laughs> like, that's what you've right, that's right. what you've told me. But like, as a lawyer, I can't, I can't vouch for you to CRA that I have personal knowledge that your children have been in your care. I can tell CRA that's what you told me. Right, right. And if C that's all CRA wants, okay, I don't know how helpful that is. But you know, the letter from CRA says, get a letter from your lawyer. Well, you know, again, I don't live with you. I don't know that your kids are with you. Um, I can only attest to what you've told me. That's very interesting, okay. Okay, sorry, I, I totally got us off track because I got very interested on this other issue because I'm always, I'm always interested in how people are doing their filings and what documentation they're keeping. So I think we had gotten through two of the top tax issues. Well, I wanted to jump back actually to the first one just to talk quickly about spousal support. Oh yes, perfect. Um, because spousal support is different than child support in that it does have tax treatment. So when we are structuring periodic so you know on a regular basis spousal support payments provided that they are for the maintenance of your spouse or former spouse and they are pursuant to a written agreement or a court order and they're made on somewhat of a regular periodic basis um, generally they are tax deductible to the payer and taxable to the recipient and this is because there's no guidelines that are sort of setting out what the actual spousal support payment would be that have already taken the tax consequences into account. That's correct. So in Canada, we have, um, they're called the spousal support advisory guidelines. And so they are not mandated law as the child support guidelines are, but they're, they're pretty much law in the sense that if the judges, you know, in the courts do not follow the guidelines, it's pretty much an automatic right of appeal unless the judge has good reason to go outside the range. But you're correct in that when the calculation is done to figure out under the advisory guidelines what the recommended range of spousal support will be, it's not already taking into account the taxes. So often, you know, it can be quite a sticker shock when somebody says, I have to pay what in spousal support, but I only take home, you know, my, after I pay my taxes, I'm only taking home five grand a month. How can you expect me to give her three of that? And it's like, well, you have to keep in mind that you're gonna get the income tax back on that three grand. And there is a form that people can file with their employers to automatically adjust how much tax is being taken off their paychecks. So, because sometimes people say, well, that's, that's great, but I can't wait until, you know, next spring to file my taxes to get a big refund. I just physically can't make ends meet now if I'm paying my full taxes plus paying spousal support and likely child support and, and you know, my expenses as well. So, you know, you can go to your employer and say, I have an agreement or I have a court order that requires me to pay spousal support, here's the amount, and then your employer can file um, a change with your statutory deduction so that they don't have to take off as much tax. That's really great to know, because you're right, sometimes the issue is, well, I can't wait a year to get that back, what am I supposed to do in the meantime? So that's great to know that there's something that can be done right away. Yeah, and then from the recipient end, though, you have to keep in mind as well that you will have to report mm -hmm. any spousal support that you receive as income, and nobody's deducting tax for you, right? right? So 
it's nice when you're you know a T Ford employee and you get your paycheck. You don't have to worry that next year CRA is going to send you a letter saying you owe you know a bunch of income tax. But if you you know if you're self-employed or if you have this other income that is not having the regular remittances, you got to keep in mind that you know just because you're receiving three thousand dollars a month, that's not all yours. So you know it may be prudent to figure out what portion of that three thousand dollars is owing to CRA and either slot that away in a bank account or make arrangements to make your own remittances during the year. Otherwise, when you file your income tax return and all of a sudden you have $36,000 of income that you haven't paid any tax on, CRA is going to send you a bill that's going to be payable exactly. right away. Exactly. I think we've been having those conversations lately in connection with the wage subsidy because I think there was a bit of a misunderstanding during COVID that, oh, here's $2,000 a month. That's just mine. But that same idea is present there where you will have to pay tax on that. And so, you know, you're trying to get by right now, but, you know, making sure you're prepared for that because otherwise next year is going to be a bit of a surprise, I think, for some people. Yeah. And that's, again, like in our, in our practices, you know, that's when the clients then come back to you because then they're in a situation with CRA where, you know, they have outstanding income taxes that, again, they have no funds to pay. And then there's interest and penalties. And, you know, my understanding is that, you know, CRAs, again, interest and penalties, they're not minimal. So, you know, it's not sometimes people choose which debt to allow to accumulate and, Income tax is is not uh, not that any debt is good to let accumulate, but it's it's definitely not a good one. And I see that a lot when we're dealing with people who are separating, and you know, it's really easy to get behind in your income taxes, whether it's personal or corporate, um, when you don't have that mandatory deduction off of the money each month. It's really easy to think, well, oh, I'll catch up at the end of the year, or you know, I'm anticipating a big payment to come in, and I'll put that towards my taxes. So if you're not kind of storing away a little bit each month from each payment that you receive, um, you know, it's not surprising that a lot of people find themselves behind. Absolutely, and I mean, yeah, that daily compound interest is is unpleasant and pleasant. Okay, so that was that's very interesting that there's quite a bit of a difference there between child support and spousal support. Yeah, and I guess just one further point on on the spousal support is it, it's key that you have those um, features of it being pursuant to a written order or uh, agreement that it's periodic, that it's for the support and maintenance of the other spouse because if you're missing any of those elements, you're not going to get the tax deduction. So sometimes what people will say is, well, I don't want to pay you $3,000 for the next 12 months. I'll just cut you a check for $36,000 and we're done. So a couple different, uh, two, two main problems with that. When we calculate under those advisory guidelines, that recommended range that might suggest $3,000 is the appropriate number per month, that assumes you're going to get the tax deduction. Okay. As soon as you pay the amount as a lump sum, there is no tax deduction. Interesting. Interesting. So, so we have lump sum calculators um, that we can also figure out to say, okay, well, if they were going to pay $3,000 for 12 months, if they want to pay that as a lump sum, how much do they actually pay? Because it's not going to be 36000 
And then I'm guessing you need to have a matching between, so let's say the agreement says, well, we're going to pay 3000 a month. But then as we know, sometimes clients leave our offices after they've signed something and they go, well, we're not going to do that. We're just going to go and pay it as a lump sum amount. But typically when you do get audited, CRA is probably going to want to see the proof of payment as well as the agreement itself. And if those two things don't match, it doesn't matter what's in the agreement. They look to what's actually happening in yeah, real life. Yeah, CRA is definitely someplace where you need your receipts. Um, they're not going to take your, your word for it. And they're going to want to see the canceled checks. They're going to want to see... Um, you know, the e-transfers, however you're sending the money. I have one client who we're now on year five, I think. I think it was 2015 that we got uh, his interim support uh, order from the court. So we have a court order from the court at Queen's Bench that specifies how much he is to pay. He has been audited every single year. Wow. And so every single year he provides them with the same court order the same 12 bank statements showing the payments to his spouse that are made. The amount hasn't changed. It's been consistent. It's the same court order from 2015. But every year, CRA comes knocking and says, we want to take a look at this. I was talking with an accountant a while, uh, probably a couple of months ago now, and they were saying that spousal support is another area where CRA is kind of rolling up their sleeves. Um, I think the concern is that, again, those payments have to be for the maintenance of the spouse. So, you know, if you have, you know, sometimes people get creative and they say, well, instead of me paying you $100,000 to equalize property, to pay you out maybe from the family home, why don't I pay you $10,000 a month for the next 10 months as spousal support? because then I'm going to get the tax deduction for that. And CRA says, uh-uh. <laughs> if that is not actually reasonable maintenance for your spouse, if you're trying to, again, guise this property transfer as support, you're going to be denied and potentially hit with penalties. So, you know, I, I haven't necessarily seen this from the majority of my clients, but this accountant was telling me that they think that there's kind of you know another task force with CRA that's really looking at these higher end support orders um, that whether they're justified by an agreement or a court order they're still getting audited they're still getting reviewed to say okay is this truly spousal support or is there something else going on here that's actually really good to know because I think that also ties into the importance of sort of the team approach to to when you're doing this type of planning where even if they've come to you and they now have an agreement in place or there's a court order in place that you need to make sure that not only are you keeping that documentation but you're also letting your accountant know what's been going on so that they're actually doing the filing correctly then you have a complete consistency across the board yeah and again you know talking with your your family law professional i guess as to what the appropriate spousal support range may be um and what the, the financial needs of the parties are. Because if you have a separated, um, s- two separated spouses and that spousal support advisory guidelines tell you that spousal support should be between two and $4,000 a month and the parties respective you know, financial statements show that they each need roughly $50,000 a year to live and there's a $10,000 a month spousal support payment going back and forth how are you going to justify that that's reasonable maintenance? 
to CRA. So kind of working through the process and looking at, you know, okay, well, what, what can we justify as reasonable in the circumstances um, is important at the forefront. Otherwise, if CRA comes and does an audit, and again, the recommendation is two to 4,000 a month, each spouse needs about $4,000 a month, and there's 10 grand going back and forth, CRA is going to say that's not spousal support and we're not giving you the tax deduction for it. That's really interesting because I mean you can characterize something as spousal support in a legal agreement for the purposes of family law resolution but that doesn't necessarily mean that it will work when it comes to tax purposes. Exactly and I think that goes back to the other point uh, the key takeaway is that the income tax rules cannot be modified by family law. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very that's like our mantra I think for this this podcast episode. <laughs> yeah like even even the judges at the court if you do something that's a little bit uh, you know not strictly in line with what CRA says or even to direct CRA to do something that you know is in line with what CRA says, typically the judges say, I'm not putting that in a court order. Because we all know that it doesn't matter what's in the court order. CRA CRA makes their own court orders, right? So they do, they do. Yeah. <laughs> so often judges will say like, look, if that's what CRA says is gonna happen, that's what will happen, but I'm not gonna put it in the court order because I can't tell CRA what to do. Well, I guess that's true. I mean, we have a jurisdictional issue as well, where mm -hmm. our superior courts here do have no jurisdiction over Canada Revenue Agency or the minister. Yeah, and I think it can lead to situations where people then feel misled if all of a sudden CRA is not following their court order because they say, hey, like a court, you know, the court here gave me a court order, which is a very important document that says I'm entitled to X, and CRA is saying no. And then it, you know, it can impact people's perception on what the court's abilities are too. So absolutely, absolutely. So okay, we started talking about tax issues. This has been great. So we talked about child support. We talked about spousal support. We talked about the the child benefit. What are some of the other key tax issues? So another another key issue, and this kind of ties into support, is that if you hire a professional, um, such as a lawyer, to try to establish child support. Um, or spousal support, or recover support, um, or change the amount of support, and you are the recipient, your professional fees are generally tax deductible. So that's another situation where you gotta keep your receipts, right? So if you are paying a lawyer to go to court for you and get a child support order for your children, make sure you have copies of your invoices as to what you've paid your lawyer and, and give those to your accountant or your tax professional when you're filing your income tax returns um, because you should be able to get a tax deduction for those professional fees. If you are the payer, you get no such deduction. So even if you are the payer and you are applying to court to reduce the, your, your support or make a change because you've had a change of income and the recipient parent is not you know, agreeing or being cooperative. Um, and even if you're successful on your application, the rules are if you're the payer, no deduction. I did not know that. That is very interesting. I have a feeling there's a lot of people that don't know that. Yeah, and it's, it's really, you know, just something you have to ask your lawyer for. So just kind of keep in your mind that if you've incurred fees to collect or receive support, ask your lawyer to give you a letter to file with your taxes and it's just a simple letter that says you know in 2020 um, Amanda Doucette incurred these fees for this purpose and the lawyer signs it and then you can file that with your taxes with proof of your invoices 
Um, and, you know, often, you know, in my practice, I try to flag my files as I'm going through them to say, okay, this client should get, get the letter, but I don't think um, generally lawyers do that. It would be up to the client to request the document because again, we're not the tax professionals. So um, we don't always necessarily know what might be you know, beneficial to the client when they're speaking with their accountant. So it's something to keep in mind um, you know, if you've incurred fees in any sort of legal matter to flag that for your accountant to say, hey, is there, you know, is there anything here? Because not that this is the topic, but you know, if it's an employment situation or you know, uh, something else, there may be tax deductibility for professional fees. And I guess if you can't get a hold of the lawyer anymore or if you're not able to get that letter at a later date, as long as you have the invoices and you've got the proof that you've paid it and that the invoices are descriptive enough to indicate what it is that you've done because sometimes that can be the issue where, you know, to all services rendered or something very generalized and that's why the letter would be of such great assistance. Yeah, because I think the key part of the letter is that it confirms that the fees were incurred to either establish or recover support. Um, so it's something to keep in mind too for the lawyers or the professionals because often a client comes to you and they have support issues, they have parenting issues, they have property issues and you're working on them all at the same time. So you might render an account at the end of the month and it's not going to break down well this portion of the account relates to child support, this portion relates to parenting, this portion relates to property but it almost needs to because any fees incurred in regard to parenting or property are not tax deductible. So I guess the other thing that we do when we send those letters, and this is the little bit of work, I guess, for the lawyer in preparing the letter, is we do specify a percentage. So if your account is for $2,000 and we say you know, roughly half of that account related to the issue of child support, then we would give you 50% and you would be able to deduct 1,000 from that $2,000 account. So it's not, oh, child support was an issue, so everything is tax deductible. It's only the fees that related to that narrow issue of support. Okay, okay, that's very good to know. Any other tax issues you wanted to raise before we move to our next topic? Yeah, I guess just the last one generally, um, we've talked a bit about parenting arrangements and support, so I'll touch just very quickly on property. So the big thing with tax, or one of the big things with, with tax treatment of property is that when you're negotiating your property division, um, you gotta make sure you're comparing apples to apples. So, you know, as a really simple example, if you have $5,000 in a bank account and I have $5,000 in a registered investment, we don't have the same, right? So, because in order for you to access your money, you just have to go to an ATM and minus the $10 fee the bank's gonna charge you to pull your money out, that's right, that's right. Um, you get your cash, right? So right. you're gonna go to your teller and you're gonna walk away with your $5,000. If I go to the teller and say, I wanna withdraw $5,000 from my registered investment, CRA is gonna say, send me my chunk, right. right? So if we both go and we take the money out of our respective $5,000 accounts, you're gonna be left with more than me. Right, right. So when we're going through property and we are de deciding who's going to keep what, we always have to keep in the back of our mind, is there tax treatment associated with this type of property? 
So often, you know, people, another example will be, well, you're going to keep the family home. I'm going to keep the family cabin. Well, because the family home was your was the primary residence, chances are, for the most part, there isn't going to be tax treatment when that property is disposed of because you're going to have your primary residence exemption. That's correct. But when I dispose of the cabin, there's probably either going to be, hopefully there's going to be a capital gain that's going to have appreciated in value um, over time. And again, CRA is going to say, where's our portion? And then people always forget with the family cabin that even if spouse moves out of family home and moves into family cabin and starts using it as principal residence, well, when you've actually gone and sold it, as we know, you can't claim that right all the way back to the beginning of time. You can only use it for the period of time that it was your principal residence. So you're right, this, the second spouse is going to get hooped, so to speak. Yeah, and again, you know, if there's no intention to sell the property immediately, sometimes you know, people aren't as aware of what the tax consequences might be because it's deferred, right? Yes. But, you know, as, you know, especially for things like farmland that have been in, you know, families for a very, very long time, um, there are some pretty serious potential capital gains um, taxes that are going to be owing if and when that property is disposed so it's important to kind of keep in mind and factor that into the negotiations because if you don't again you may be walking away with a deal that you think is equal but in reality after you know the one spouse pays their tax bill they're left with significantly less absolutely absolutely well this is kind of an interesting segue i think to a kind of a, a bit of our discussion of topic two which we've gotten into a bit of this but i i do want to sort of destigmatize prenups and cohabitation agreements so we the second topic is sort of how do we minimize these financial implications is there is there planning that we can do and i think sometimes the the prenup or the cohab agreement it, it gets a bit of a bad rap um and and i think it there's there's a need to destigmatize that yeah, and, and I agree 100%. I think that a lot of times people still look at prenups and they think that there's some you know shady document that's signed in the limo on the way to the church. <laughs> and you know they're always such a negative thing because people assume the marriage is going to fail. Um, and and I, you know, I really try to encourage people not to look at it that way. In our society, we do have a very high separation or divorce rate. Um, and I don't think that that's going to change, right? I think yeah. if anything, it may increase. I think as you know, the new generations are coming up, people are more in tune with their own wants and their needs. And if their relationships aren't meeting those wants and needs, people are recognizing that it's you know perfectly normal and natural to transition to a new stage of their life. So having effective planning in place as to what that might look like I actually think is a really good thing to do with your spouse. Well, and I wonder if we can just take a very quick step back. And, and the reason why I'm flagging this is I ran into an issue. I was working with a lawyer in Iowa for some clients who were entering into a business arrangement with some people down there. And we ended up having an interesting discussion about prenups because my understanding of family law in Iowa, and I do not practice in Iowa, so that's my legal disclaimer right now, but my understanding is that if you are already married or you're already in a common law relationship, you cannot then subsequently enter into one of these contracts. 
they have to do it before they reach that particular time period. And once you've gone afterwards, there's a different type of agreement that you're allowed to legally enter into. So for Canadian law purposes, like we're going to discuss today, can you very quickly describe the difference between a prenup and a cohab agreement, if there is one, and then the timing of when you're allowed to make one of those? Sure. So I'm going to narrow it even further to what uh, is available in Saskatchewan. So in Canada, um, each province has their own family property uh, legislation and regime. So it is provincially regulated. So it's important to keep in mind um, that each province has slight nuances in their law. And, you know, it was it's interesting because even um, you know, I believe it was just January 1st of this year that Alberta recognized common law status, okay. something that we've had in Saskatchewan since 2002, wow. I believe. So wow. 18 years later, um, Alberta finally said, if you're living common law, you have the same property rights as legal, legally married spouses. So this is another area where the terminology, I think, really just kind of messes things up for us. So in Saskatchewan, our legislation is called the Family Property Act. And the term used in the Family Property Act is interspousal agreement. And what our Family Property Act says is that property that is dealt with pursuant to a valid interspousal agreement is exempt from the act. So whether you are planning at the start of your relationship how you would like to property to be divided, or if you're doing an agreement at the end of your relationship saying this is how property is going to be divided. If you want to move your property outside of the, the reach of the legislation, it has to be done pursuant to a valid interspousal agreement. So that could be, again, it could be a separation agreement, it could be a prenuptial agreement, it could be a cohabitation agreement, it could be a postnuptial agreement. That term interspousal agreement could mean lots of different types of agreements. So it's basically like an agreement with your spouse. Correct. Gotcha. So what what the key difference between you know a prenuptial or a cohabitation agreement is is prenuptial is pre-marriage. So if there is a legal intention to marry, um, then you could use the word prenuptial. I can tell you though, I never use prenuptial. Um, that term on my agreements. I always forget how to spell it. Like oh, I always I spell it and then I go back and go, is that right? You know what? Microsoft Word doesn't know how to spell it either. Okay. It, oh, I always get the red squiggly <laughs> line under it when I, when I do use that term. So uh, I, I like to use cohabitation agreement or just interspousal agreement. Okay. So when I use cohabitation agreement is if people don't have the legal status of spouses. So if two people are just starting to live together, they don't legally become spouses until they've lived together for two years right. or get legally married. Right. Um, so really what they're doing is they're cohabitating. So that is why then I refer to it as a cohabitation agreement. But it's um, not like if they went and got legally married, they have to come back to you and change it now. So it's a postnuptial agreement. That's correct. So we, we specifically put in the agreement, assuming this is what the parties want, that should they cohabitate for a period of two years or more, or if they enter a legal form of marriage, the agreement remains the same. And that's important because there's a decision out of the courts in Saskatchewan um, where parties had a cohabitation agreement that did not contemplate what happened if they got married. And they did later get legally married, 
And I think it was the wife in that case then said, hey, cohabitation agreement no longer applies because that was only intended if we were cohabitating, you know, in a common law or non-married relationship. Now that we're married, I didn't agree to those same terms and the court agreed. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it's a it's a older decision, like you know, 15, 20 years from now. But you know, again, it's key to have that that term in your your cohabitation agreement to confirm that should you enter a legal form of marriage, this agreement remains in effect. And the other thing I find that pops up a lot is is the process of how to enter into one of these so it does fit within the confines of the act and this concept of independent legal advice and what that looks like. Yeah, that's the big thing, right? Is that people are always like, well, do I really need a lawyer to do this? Um, and the answer is if you want it to be a valid interspousal <laughs> agreement under the Family Property Act, yes, you do need a lawyer. It's, you know, it's the one area of the law in family law in Saskatchewan where the legislation specifically says you need independent legal advice. So you and I can enter into an agreement regarding parenting of our children. We don't need lawyers to do that. Um, but if you and I want to talk about how we're going to divide up our money, we need lawyers to help us with that. That is crazy. Hey? So it always, it always seems kind of backwards, but I think it's because the court always has kind of a, a hammer over issues regarding support in kids. So if you and I agree to something pertaining to our children and we don't have lawyers involved and it's just a crazy arrangement um, and one of us goes to the court and says we'd like to set this agreement aside the court is always interested in what's best for the kids so even if we have lawyers sign off on that agreement with us if it's not what's best for the kids the court has jurisdiction to change it well, and, and, and this makes me think of something else to ask you about prenups is, is are prenups really an all or nothing? I think sometimes when people think about prenups, they think they have to throw everything into it. So what are the options if you're doing an interspousal or you're doing a cohab agreement? What are the options for things that you could or do not have to necessarily put into the agreement? Yeah, the nice thing about these agreements is they really can be tailored to whatever the particular couple is interested in. So going back to kind of why, you know, I. I would like these agreements to be seen as a good thing, not, you know, uh, not have that stigma attached to them, is that when you're making the decision to live with somebody or to get married, you know, it's important to have those discussions up front about what your expectations are um, in terms of property and finances and make sure that you're compatible on that front. Uh, you know, isn't it better to go into a relationship knowing that the other person expects a, B, and C, opposed to living with them for 10 years and then finding out. So having a discussion, for example, um, you know, something we see that comes up a lot is somebody already owns the house that the, the parties are living in, and they've owned that house for five or 10 years, so there's equity in that property. And in Saskatchewan, our family property access doesn't matter. As soon as you are spouses and you reside in that home as your family home, it's shareable 50-50. So it doesn't matter if you know, if the, the wife or the, or the mom um, owned that property before and, you know, put $100,000 into the, the property, as soon as it becomes the family home, that equity is shared 50-50. So sometimes what people will do is they'll say, well, that's not, that's not really fair because I, you know, husband didn't contribute to that. That was her money. And maybe he has, you know, his, his money's in an investment or maybe he has a rental property. Or maybe 
his home that he lived in before they moved in together, you know, it has equity in it, but because it's not the family home, he's going to get an exemption for his equity. So what a couple might do is they say, you know, that $100,000 that she had in the house prior to the relationship, if we separate, she gets to keep that. And then we'll share 50-50 in the growth going forward. But, you know, if something happens, she gets to keep that money. And that, again, can give people security going into the relationship, right? Because otherwise, if there's no agreement in place, these people move into this house, they live there for three years, they break up, $50,000 now just walks out the door with that relationship. Exactly, exactly. Well, and I, I think that this kind of actually is a good segue into our third topic. So when we talk about the fact that there's lots of different options for what can go into this type of an agreement, I think it's also helpful to talk about what are the different ways that you can actually come to an agreement like this, or that if you are separating, what are the different options for how you can resolve that separation? And in particular, a new focus on alternative dispute resolution measures, which is something that, that you have a, a high skill set in. Yeah, so I find, you know, especially over the last couple of years with doing cohabitation agreements or interspousal agreements, um, at the forefront of the relationship. So when people are talking about, okay, well, what, what, would, what would this look like if, if we did separate? And you know what properties should be on the table for division? And what property maybe do we want to protect? And what are our expectations for support? I find that the process that works best is more of a mediation-like process. So my role when I meet with both sides, so I would meet with both, both um, the husband and the wife or the man and the woman or the man and the man or the woman and the woman um, I meet with the couple together to talk collectively about what are they looking for in this agreement and so I'm not there to give them their independent legal advice I'm there to work with them to talk about generally this is you know what the Family Property Act provides what kind of property do you have you know what might you want to protect might what might you want to include in your agreement um, and then work with them to draft the agreement together. I find that that process often works much better than one party going in to meet with a lawyer alone, drafting up a one-sided agreement, and then sending it over to the other person's lawyer. And then that person sometimes walks in to meet their lawyer for the independent legal advice, and they don't even know what the agreement says. Right, right. That's getting back into the, the nasty agreement in the back of the limo on the way to the wedding. Exactly. And again, I think that increases the stigma attached to it because, it, again, it pits the people against each other in a way, right? Whereas it should be a collaborative process between the spouses. Um, this isn't meant to try to, you know, screw one another over. You love each other. You're entering your relationship. This is the best time to sit and have these discussions. That doesn't mean that it always goes well. Um, it's still, you know, a sensitive topic to talk about, well, you know, if, if we separate, you're not taking my money kind of thing. But again, it's better to have those discussions up front um, and make sure that you at least understand where the other person is coming from and then also have the security of the relationship uh, throughout the relationship that if, you know, the relationship does break down, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, having to make decisions based out of fear that 
mom and dad's farmland that came to you is now going to have to be sold because you're going to have to pay out your ex-spouse for half the value kind of thing. And then that same sort of mediation process is available on the back end as well, correct? That's correct. So there's there's different options. Um, there's lots of different options and processes for how to address family law matters. And I think a lot of people automatically assume, well, I'm going to have to go to court. It's going to be messy. A judge is going to make a decision. I'm going to lose everything. Um, and then they get scared and, and sometimes then what happens is they just bury their head in the sand and they don't want to deal with it because they're afraid of what the process might be and I think those fears are justified. There's lots of horror stories out there but there's also lots of you know good stories about how again people may recognize that this relationship isn't working anymore um, and we need to transition out of the relationship and let's do that in a way that minimizes you know, money that we're paying to professionals or CRA um, and maximizes kind of our ability to start our next chapter on the best foot. So again, areas that kind of interplay with the tax issue on separation is often when people either own like farmland or businesses um, that aren't going to be easily liquidated, right? Like if I have a bank account it's pretty, it might not be enjoyable, but it's pretty easy for me to transfer half of that balance to you. But if I have, if you and I own a corporation together and I'm going to keep the corporation, how am I going to generate funds to pay you out? And so often that question is complex and it may require collaboration with the corporate accountant, may require collaboration with a financial planner, um, both sides lawyers, and using a process like mediation um, really allows people an opportunity to explore kind of what does this actually mean for each of us and for our business. Because when you go to court, not, not to be disrespectful to the court, but the court doesn't care what happens to your business. The court's function is to enforce the legislation. And the legislation says roughly each spouse walks away with 50% of value. So if you have a corporation that's worth $5 million, the court doesn't care that it's going to bankrupt your company if you have to pay your spouse out for half of that. That's what you're legally required to do. So if you and your spouse can come up with some sort of arrangement that still you know, honors the spirit of the Family Property Act, but maybe delays some payment or maybe transfers other property to the spouse or comes up with some sort of arrangement that will, you know, ensure the longevity of the business, that will be in the long run best for both sides. Because if the business folds as a result of the divorce, nobody's going to have any money. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's interesting to have one person almost be like a quarterback, like the mediator is there and they're gathering the information and they're providing not even so much advice, but they're providing the consequences. So they're saying, if we go this route, here is A, B, and C, what's going to happen. We may need to gather stuff from the accountant. We may need to gather stuff from your lawyer, from your advisor, but it's that sort of neutral third party that's in there to sort of just try to get something resolved. Yeah, and it, you know, you, you can keep the pace better because often, you know, if people are involved in litigation through the court, 
you're not necessarily thinking as clearly as you might if you don't have that very adversarial process on your back. Um, court does pit people against one another and it is about winning, right? And it is about putting your best foot forward. You're not gonna walk into the courtroom and say, I'm prepared to make these concessions <laughs> because you don't know if the court's gonna give you the other things that you want, right? Um, it's very risky to go into court to say, well, if you give me A, B, and C, I'm willing to let this go because you're not gonna go into the courtroom and show your entire hand. Whereas with mediation, it's more of a safe space where you can have those discussions on a without prejudice basis, meaning that if a, a resolution isn't found, you're not gonna be held to it, but it allows you to explore those other options. And again, with the assistance of the professionals that you know, have the information about your business um, and about what people really need. I think especially with like long-term relationships um, where maybe one person was the breadwinner and one person was, you know, more in charge of the home, people don't necessarily even know what they need in terms of finances going forward. So there's options with mediation to bring in like financial planners to talk about um, post-separation budgeting and, you know, looking at you're both nearing retirement in the next 10 years. How do we maximize your investments together to ensure you can both retire? I see that come up a lot um, on my files where people are nearing retirement and then a separation occurs and all of a sudden those retirement goals either get taken away by the court because the court says, nope, you're gonna continue to work and you're gonna pay support to your spouse or they're just not realistic because now there's two households to pay for. So if somebody wanted to go the mediation route, I think it might be helpful to explain where you'd find a mediator because you've done some fairly extensive training and certification in the area. So we'll limit this to Saskatchewan, but how does somebody go about finding a mediator for family law purposes? I, th I think, you know, with with most most things like with professional advisors you know if you already have a connection you can always ask um, for a referral you can do a google search the saskatchewan government does have a list of qualified family mediators um, the reason that that list is now available is that there is going to be mandatory requirement for people to attend some sort of ADR, which is alternative dispute resolution um, process before they can go to court. So they rolled out this, this new law earlier this year and started in the Judicial Center, Prince Albert. Again, with COVID, I think things have gotten delayed a bit, but the intention is eventually the entire province, um, this will be mandatory. So right now, like with our civil litigation, if you commence a claim, you and I are fighting over um, a, a fence on our property line and I sue you because I say your fence is on my property. The court says, well, you guys can't just rush before a judge. Once you file your, your claim and your defense, you have to go to mandatory mediation. And until you complete that mandatory mediation, you don't get to bring any applications to the court. So essentially family court's gonna be doing the same. So once you file your initial paperwork with the court, you're not gonna be able to immediately file for custody or immediately file for support. There, there will be you know, exceptions if there's issues of violence or you know, a child is in danger or something like that. But generally, you're going to have to prove that you completed that step before you can even ask the court to assist. 
So that list that's available um, through the government of Saskatchewan are people who are qualified to basically check the box that you have completed that step. Not just anybody can do that. Well, and maybe what I'll do is get that information from you and we can include it in the show notes for at least for our Saskatchewan listeners to know sure. where that list is located. So this has been really fabulous, Kim. I've, we've been we've been chatting it up and I've learned some, every time I talk to you, I always learn something about family law, which is so great and so helpful. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us um, during this podcast episode. We may have to have you come back because I feel like there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we just didn't even have time to get into. I would love to be back. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you smile. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about our amazing guest today. Thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in reading or learning more, I invite you to subscribe to my weekly blog, The Tax Chick Blog. If you have an idea for a future episode or a burning question you would like to see discussed, please send me an email at thetaxchickpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, then please leave a review on iTunes and click subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.